The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 31. As I've done before, I'll read a selection of verses from the chapter, and those verses will be up here on the overhead. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. This time we'll call the kids down to the front for the children's sermon. This morning's Bible story tells us about the death of King Saul. Two weeks ago I explained the difference between discipline and punishment. Discipline is for our children whom we love. Punishment is for criminals whom we don't love. When we send a criminal to jail or to the electric chair, it isn't because we love him. We're giving him the fair reward for his evil actions. When we discipline children, we do it because we love them and we want them to understand and to learn that wrong acts will have bad consequences. It's better that you get spanked or scolded than that you get seriously hurt or even killed doing something you're not supposed to do. Sometimes our parents use the word punish, but that's the wrong word. The right word is chasten. And two weeks ago, we learned how God chastened David. God chastens his dear children. Chastening, you remember, is part of what we call discipline. Discipline is everything that our parents use to teach us to be obedient. In the Bible story today, we read how God punished Saul. God was not in love trying to teach Saul how to be obedient. Saul was not one of God's children. Just like your parents don't discipline the next door neighbor kids, God doesn't discipline the devil's children. He punishes them. In one way, though, Saul was sort of like a rod with which God disciplined Israel. Israel had been very disobedient to God, and one way they showed their disobedience was in wanting to have a king like the other nations had, nations that did not know or love or serve God. In order to discipline Israel for this sinful desire, he gave them Saul. And God used this to discipline, to teach them 
that they should want a king who was a picture of Jesus, the true king of God's people. Now, David was the man that God had chosen for this, and God even used Saul to discipline David. David learned how to be uh, patient, how to obey God when it didn't make sense, and how to always protect and defend his people. After God was done using Saul, he got rid of him. And our story today tells us how. Saul and his army were beaten very badly by their enemies, the Philistines. Now, Saul wasn't even really fighting. He was riding in his chariot around the edges of the battlefield. If you'd have seen him, he'd have looked very busy, running back and forth. But he was really just hiding the fact that he was afraid. He wasn't fighting God's enemies. He was just running around pretending. Philistine soldiers shot a bunch of arrows in Saul's direction, and one of them got through his metal armor. It hit him right where two pieces of armor came together, the one lucky spot where it could hit him and hurt him, and he was very badly wounded. He knew that he would die. Because he had no God to call upon, he took out his sword, stood it up on its end, and fell on top of it to kill himself. Now, Saul had committed a lot of terrible sins in his lifetime, but he committed an even more terrible sin in his death. He threw away God's gift of life. The Bible tells us that we must never murder anyone, and the first person you shouldn't murder is yourself. If you kill a man, you can be arrested and punished. But if you kill yourself, there's no way to punish you for this terrible crime. You bring shame to your whole family who has to live with the embarrassment of everybody knowing what you did. Saul's terrible sin of self-murder was the natural result of his life of sin. Life and death belong to God. He gives them. He decides when we live and die. But Saul never liked to give God what was his. Saul never gave God the obedience he owed God. In his life, Saul always tried to take what was God's. And now in his death, he tried to take God's right again. No, God, you don't get to decide when I live and die. I do. Saul died the same way that he lived, disobedient and disrespectful to God and his word. Now we'll pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May the Holy Spirit be with us now as the Spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. Well, our text brings us back to chapter 28, where Saul has just left the witch's house completely debilitated. After the seance, Saul had collapsed on the ground, completely drained. We read that he hadn't eaten anything in a whole day. So this combination of hunger and fear and mental and emotional stress was too much for him. And in this broken condition, he hobbles back to his camp. And as the morning dawns, he faces the prospect of leading his army to the slaughter, convinced that he will die. 
It doesn't get darker than this. Scripture describes the life of the wicked as having no hope and without God in the world. That's Saul to a T. By Saul's own admission, God had forsaken him. He was without God in the world. And he fully believed that he would not end this day alive. He was without hope. Now, no one in this kind of frame of mind is going to do anything smart. You don't want a man like this commanding your armies. I can tell you that. He's not going to charge in like a hero longing for the glory of death in battle. He's going to behave like a fool and get everybody killed. Well, the death of Saul provides us with an Old Testament analog to the death of Judas Iscariot. That's why we read about the death of Judas earlier. Saul, like Judas, was right near the heart of the church, and yet he knew nothing of the grace of God. Saul, like Judas, was in the company of God's chosen king, and rather than accept this, he wanted him killed. Saul tried to use the Philistines to get David killed. Judas used the Jewish hierarchy and Roman government to get Jesus killed. Saul's guilty conscience drove him to suicide. Judas's guilty conscience drove him to suicide. Now, I want to consider Saul's suicide this morning in the following way. The power of conscience, number one, to sleep indefinitely, number two, to awaken suddenly, and number three, to exact sentence. The power of conscience to sleep. One of the more foolish things that has persisted in evangelical circles for the last several decades is the notion that A sense of peace is an indicator of God's will. You'll hear people all the time defend iffy decisions by saying, I just have a real sense of peace about this. And I want to say to them, so what? Where does the Bible even remotely suggest that a sense of peace about a thing is an indication of God's will? Jonah, while blatantly disobeying God's explicit command to go to Nineveh, went down into the hull of a ship and fell asleep. He had so much peace that he slept through a God-sent hurricane. An inner sense of peace may just as much be an indicator of a dead conscience as it may be of anything else. The only indicator of the rightness or wrongness of an act is the law of God. Your sense of peace or your absence of a guilty conscience means absolutely squat. Look through Saul's history. And see how his conscience slept when he hid among his family's luggage at his own coronation. How his conscience slept when he presumed to offer sacrifice, willfully crossing the lines of God's law. You know, when Samuel rebuked him, he didn't plead ignorance. How his conscience slept when he took God's name in vain in laying an unreasonable fast upon his soldiers that were engaged in active combat. How it slept when he carried the Ark of the Covenant into battle. How it slept when, he, when God refused to be inquired of, him by, by, inquired of by him and he willingly attempted to pin the blame on anyone else. How it slept as he willingly tried to put his, own, his son Jonathan to death for his own sin. How it slept when he spared Agag, king of Amalek, and the best of the animals. He professed obedience to God in the very thing wherein he was most rebellious. How his conscience slept 
when Goliath mocked the, the God of Israel for 40 days, how it slept when the evil spirit from God troubled him. Shouldn't he have seen God's hand in this? How it slept when he attempted to pin David to the wall with his spear twice. How it slept when he took God's name in vain, swearing that he wasn't trying to kill David. His conscience slept as he swore at Jonathan, slandering the honor of his own wife, and then threw his spear at him to kill him. His conscience did not awake it when David spared his life, not once, but twice. His conscience did not awaken, though God repeatedly refused to be inquired of by him. His conscience slept as he hired a witch to contact the spirit of the dead prophet Samuel. And finally, his conscience slept when he swore to that witch that he wasn't trying to entrap her. And he swore to a witch a lie in the name of God. Israel's king was to be a foreshadowing of Christ. Saul, in many ways, is a foreshadowing of Judas Iscariot. He refused to bow the knee to God's anointed and was so bent on killing him that he was willing to damn his soul to hell if that's what it took. Saul betrayed his master, David, just as Judas betrayed David's greater son. And like Judas, his guilt led him to self-murder. Secondly, the power of conscience to awaken once it's too late. Saul trampled God's law, name, and glory underfoot over and over again without a twinge of conscience. He could lay down every night in the battlefield, in the woods, in the caves, and sleep like a baby. But oh, did his conscience come blazing back to life when a Philistine arrow pierced his armor. He stood on the brink of eternal doom, and he knew it. Suddenly, Saul's thoughts take a decidedly religious turn. Listen to how he speaks to his armor bearer. Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. That expression, these uncircumcised, it has no parallel with us, unfortunately. The closest would be these unbaptized. Now, I'm of the opinion that that is a fair equivalent, but the reason that it doesn't have the same bite is because we're more prone to belittle baptism than the Old Testament church was to belittle circumcision. I've never heard a Christian speak disparagingly of unbelievers as these unbaptized. But the Old Testament saints routinely spoke of the heathen as these uncircumcised. Saul expects to be rudely handled by the Philistines, to be tortured by them if he's still alive when he's taken, or to have his corpse desecrated if they find him dead. And the reason that he expects the Philistines to behave in such a brutish way is because they are outside of God's covenant. They're uncircumcised. They have never been under the morally enlightening influence of God's law. I could easily go off on a tangent about this. I believe we are gravely guilty before God for neglecting and contemning His sacraments, as the Westminster Confession puts it. But that would carry us too far afield. What I want you to see is that as Saul's life is coming to a gruesome end, his mind instinctively turns to religious categories. History affords us with many such cases. 
The famous atheist Voltaire, as he lay dying, said, I'm abandoned by God and man. And he said to his doctor, I'll give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me six months' life. And when the doctor told him that couldn't be done, he replied, then I shall die and go to hell. Voltaire's nurse said, for all the money in Europe, I wouldn't want to see another unbeliever die. On his deathbed, the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes said, I say again, if I had the whole world at my disposal, I would give it to live one day. I'm about to take a leap into the dark. Sir Francis Newport, the head of the English Atheist Club, said to those who were gathered around his deathbed, You need not tell me there is no God, for I know that there is one and I am in His presence. You need not tell me there is no hell. I feel myself already slipping. Wretches, cease your idle talk about there being hope for me. I know I am lost forever. Oh, that fire. Oh, the insufferable pangs of hell. David Hume, atheist philosopher, famous for his philosophy of empiricism and skepticism of religion, cried out loud on his deathbed, I am in flames. When Scripture says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, it isn't kidding. Men can puff up their chests and mock God in their phony bravado, but all men instinctively know that there is a God. Atheists are all liars, and on their deathbeds, they are forced to acknowledge God. Saul has ignored and disregarded God for nearly his entire 40-year reign. He lives comfortably without God, but when he knew that his life was in the balance, he had to come to grips with the fact that God had forsaken him, and his mind took a sudden religious turn, and that turn got sharper as he lay there bleeding out in his chariot. His conscience has slept in an almost comatose state while he has marched on in a course of rebellion and wickedness before God. But now, when he can do nothing but die in agony, his conscience comes blazing back to life. And yet, Saul's conscience is not pricked by the Holy Spirit. This is not a conscience awakened to God's law. Scripture says, the fear of man is a snare. I'd like to believe that when you are at death's door, you'll realize that you are inches from facing your judge and knowing that, that you'll care about God's opinion of you in your life. Many people and many professing Christians at that go through life in the fear of man. What will others say about me? What will they think of me if I don't go along with them? I know this thing is wrong, but I don't want people to think that I'm some stick-in-the-mud killjoy who wants to ruin their fun and make them feel guilty. Trust me, if that's what you're thinking on your deathbed, you'd better fear for your eternal soul. You think, I don't want people to think I'm some goody-two-shoes who's going to hold water on Judgment Day. Saul is not the least bit concerned that he is about to stand before the almighty thrice holy God. He's thinking, I hope the Philistines don't find me and abuse my corpse. If you're more afraid of men's opinion of you than of God's, you need to repent like right now. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Saul was more afraid of the Philistines who could but kill his body than he was of God who could damn his soul to eternal hell. A lot of people justify known sin because they're afraid of what others might think. Actually, we're afraid that they'll feel convicted of their sin, that our righteousness will make them uncomfortable, and then they'll no longer like us. If you willingly violate the law of God because you're afraid of what men might think of you, you'd deny Jesus Christ to His face if your life was on the line. Make no mistake, the fear of man is a snare. Saul is about to send his immortal soul into eternal hellfire, and he's more worried about what the stinking Philistines might do to his body. What about your soul, bucko? What about your soul? This is very important. If I said, it's too late for Saul to repent and believe in Christ, you'd probably say to me, No, pastor, it's never too late. But I'd like you to go back in your memory to every time that you have stood at the bedside of a dying loved one and ask yourself some very honest questions. Have they been lucid enough to listen to a gospel appeal? Have they not been absolutely unable to think or reason on account of severe pain or unable to think because they aren't even conscious? or because they're under the stupefying influence of powerful drugs. People often lose full use of their mental faculties long before they're near death's door. How many of us have lost a loved one to dementia or Alzheimer's? I'll settle accounts when I get older. Yeah, that's assuming your brain will still be working by then. So yes, in one sense, It's true that as long as a man is living, it's not too late. But in another sense, that isn't true at all. People that put off getting right with God until they're old and frail overlook the fact that their faculties of mind may be long gone when they get there. They overlook what their own experience has demonstrated to them. They may be stone unconscious due to medication, and they may be in that state for years. And thirdly, The power of conscience to exact sentence. It is a fearful thing, this this power conscience has to sleep, to raise no alarm, to cause no unease as you careen forward in a career of sin until you reach a point of no return. It's like a private eye lurking in the shadows, snapping incriminating photos, writing down all your dirty deeds, submitting the details of your lawlessness to a prosecutor who wants to send you to the chair. Always there, but never giving himself away, never uttering a single word of caution until sin has run its full course and you awaken to sealed doom. But there is another solemn truth in this event that we must see and understand. God has placed within man instinctive knowledge of certain facts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in their hearts. The knowledge of these facts often lies below the level of consciousness, but it determines our actions, whether acknowledged or not. And one unassailable truth that all men are instinctively aware of is that sin must be and will be punished with death. Saul's action 
falling on his own sword, just like Judas hanging himself, teaches us a sobering truth with regard to this fact, man's awareness of the need of atonement. Take away the gospel, take away the cross, take away the Bible with its message of redemption and pardon through Christ, and then let a man, racked by his guilty conscience, try to manage the mighty problem of sin. And the end result is the death of a suicide. The only atonement the man can make is to rush upon his own doom, to go ahead of God's decree and wrath by invoking the infliction of eternal justice on his own head. Don't we always sense the gravity of it when we, when we do things that we know can't be undone? We often sign contracts with a trembling hand because we know that once we've set our seal upon it, we can't just back out. It is not uncommon for a bride or groom to faint at the altar. And it isn't fear that causes this, but a sudden sense of the sanctity of what they're embarking on, a solemn and inviolable covenant. In his famous work, The Enchiridion, Augustine writes, a man who kills himself must, of course, be alive when he kills himself, but after he has killed himself, ceases to live and cannot restore himself to life. The act once done, cannot be undone. The power of self-deception is nowhere more definitively proven than in suicide. Under the blinding power of temptation, they permit themselves to believe a lie. Under the idea of relief and escape, they thrust themselves into deeper calamity. In an attempt to escape their present suffering, they put the cup of eternal woe to their own lips. I'm only trying to escape. Yeah, but that's only half the question. Into what will you bring yourself is the more important part of that question. In his 1908 book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton wrote, Not only is suicide a sin, it is the sin. It is the ultimate and absolute evil, the refusal to take an interest in existence, the refusal to take the oath of loyalty to life. The man who kills a man kills a man. The man who kills himself kills all men. As far as he's concerned, he wipes out the world. Now, back at the beginning of this series of sermons, I asserted that 1 Samuel 2.6 was the theme of the whole book, the Lord kills and makes alive. And in our text this morning, we have what looks like a challenge to that assertion. Saul kills himself. But let's read 1 Chronicles 10, 13 and 14, which give us a big picture assessment of Saul. And there we read, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him and turn the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So here we have sacred scripture telling us that God killed Saul. God works through means. God killed Saul by the secondary means of Saul lifting his hand against himself. God killed Saul in the way of Saul's suicide. Now in closing, I want to compare Saul's shameful self-murder with Jonathan's honorable death. Before we look at Jonathan's death in any detail, I want to point your attention to the way, the ways the Bible contrasts 
the death of the wicked with the death of the righteous. God likens the death of the wicked to dung lying upon the ground. Many places in Scripture say that shameful deaths are allotted to the wicked. When the wicked dies, Scripture says that God is blotting his memory from the earth. Against the sinful house of Israel, God declares in Ezekiel 28.10, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised. In other words, you'll die like the heathen. When the wretched Queen Athaliah was executed, we read, the land rejoiced and the city was peaceful. Job 20 verse 7 says the wicked perish like their own dung. Not a very pretty picture, right? Over and over in Scripture, the death of the wicked is said to be full of shame and dishonor. But of the saints, Scripture speaks differently. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And if you read the rest of that psalm, You'll notice that the speaker is plainly Jesus and that he is speaking of his own death. That explains the blessedness of the saint's death because the saint dies united to Christ and thus under the blood of Christ. Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. So with this in mind, let's compare the death of Saul with the death of Jonathan. Saul's death was marked by its sinfulness. Jonathan's was marked by its innocence. A man who loves God and who is loved by God may may be innocently involved in a lost cause. In this world, men are often so involved with one another in unavoidable ways that as one may share in the success of another without deserving any credit, so also may one share in the downfall of another without being at fault for the actions which brought about the disastrous outcome. Family ties and official position dragged Jonathan in as collateral damage into a uh, catastrophe not of his own doing. Jonathan dies in the same battle in which Saul dies, but he doesn't die the same way. Saul died as a fool dieth. Jonathan died as an honorable warrior, and his name lives on in praise and honor. Saul died in wickedness with the weapons of rebellion in his hand. Instead of taking refuge under the death of Christ, which was depicted before him every day in the offering of the morning and evening sacrifices, he entered a Christless eternity at his own hand. And his name has lived on in infamy and shame. Saul's death was marked by its untimeliness. Jonathan's death was marked by its timeliness. Now, we may say that Jonathan died too young, but he died in an honorable cause defending the church of God against her enemies. Many men have died honorable battlefield deaths, and when they have, we may say that they died young, but we would never say that their deaths were untimely because no one goes to war oblivious to the fact that he may very well never return home. When Jonathan died in combat against the Philistines, he died fighting the Lord's battles, serving the God of his salvation. Saul's death was the untimely death. He died on the battlefield, but he didn't die in battle. He didn't die the heroic death of a fallen warrior. He died the shameful death of a coward. And even on the brink of eternity, he was more concerned about how his dead body would be treated than the condition of his soul before the thrice holy Jehovah. 
Now, Saul's death opened the way for David to assume the throne. But in a very real sense, so did Jonathan's. Jonathan served David more in his death than he did in his life. I think there's no doubt that had Jonathan survived, he would have willingly stepped aside for David. But it is very likely that the nation would not have permitted this. They understood royal succession just like everyone else. Had Jonathan survived, there would have been very ugly conflict between the factions that sided with either man. And both men would have suffered immensely from such conflict. Jonathan missed an earthly throne, but he gained a heavenly crown of life. And thus it is with many deaths that seem sad and untimely. A man of God cannot lose by dying. To die is gain. But he may, by dying, advance the cause of God more than he could by living. His departure out of this world may clear the ground for other arrangements under God's providence. Now, in the end, all men die, either as Saul did or as Jonathan did. Everyone leaves this world to face the great white throne of divine judgment. And all men are either clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness or clad in nothing, wallowing in their own blood. Let us pray.